Welcome to the Track Quest Podcast. I'm your host, James Orr, and joining me as always, Robert Borland, my sidekick. What's up, Robert? How you doing, James? Man, I'm doing awesome. Uh, today, we've got a super special guest for you guys. We've got Paul Medell, the elk nut from McCall, Idaho. This guy is a super intense elk killing machine. He is uh, hunting with stick bows calling in big bulls and really uh, educating the public about how to call elk in, how to understand what they're saying, when they're saying it, when to, when to, when to call, when not to call. He he really breaks it all down. Um, All the information is available on his website. He's got DVDs. He's got an app and we, we have him for three and a half hours. We're going we're gonna to cut this interview in half. We're putting it out right before elk season for you guys. So if you're on your way to elk camp and you, you really want to get yourself jacked up, uh, we've got the, we got the elk nut for you, Paul Medell. How you doing today, Paul? Hey, I'm doing good. I, uh, I want to thank you guys for uh, for the invite here and having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, man, we're super excited to have you. Paul's been super patient with us tonight. We're, as you guys know, uh, not the most technically advanced guys, and it took us a while to link us all onto Skype, so we appreciate your patience tonight, Paul. Hey, no problem. I, I feel honored just to be here and, and to be able to talk elk, you know, with like elk nuts. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So, uh, why don't you tell us, you know, how you got started in, in, uh, elk hunting and calling elk and where, uh, elk nut outdoors originated. Yeah. Hey, no problem. You know, it's funny because, uh, even though I have a passion for elk and and it means everything to me, it really is. It's my life. I came from a, from a background or a family that never hunted nothing, zero. So, a lot of people don't know that. Uh, they think that I probably came from a hunting family and, and it kind of uh, stemmed out from there. But actually, it didn't do that. And so I kind of learned everything on my own trial and error. And, you know, being 62 years old right now, when I was, you know, 12, 14, 16 years old, there was no such thing as the Internet. There was no information out there to try to glean from like we have today. If a guy wants to know about a call or a sequence or a sound, there's so much information out there that somebody has at the tip of their fingers on their on their on their computer which is really nice it really is it's a big plus but coming from back then there was really nobody there and it was all just i had that desire inside to want to hunt elk i don't know why how do you come with that when nobody else in your family hunts but it was there and so that burning desire just kind of carried over into uh, a persistent passion that it was something I was going to do. Are you and from? I, are you from Idaho? That's funny. I was just going to say, and I'm from California. <laughs> I was that's, born and raised in Stockton, California. That's awesome. Uh, I, I I was uh, born in California, moved to Oregon when I was 12, and I don't come from a hunting background either. Um, but like you said, the internet uh, 
helped me learn stuff. And actually, uh, I've been talking to Paul on the phone for about 10 years now. And Paul has been uh, instrumental in teaching me about elk behavior and elk vocals. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, Paul. No, so, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of a, of a stepping stone effect. That one thing led to another. And, and it was really later in my teens and just before I was 20 that I actually left uh, California and I've been in Idaho ever since. So I've been here a long, long time. And it, it, that passion never died. It never faded at all. I, it, it kind of mounted into wanting to know everything I could about this animal. And like anybody else, you know, I, I had a ton of trial and errors. But I understood really early on that elk had a language. And I knew they did. I knew nothing about it. Zero. Didn't know where to start and so i felt the best thing to do is to go where the elk are and being in idaho most folks may may uh, realize that this is an over-the-counter state every there's so much public land out here it's crazy way more than private and so especially in this part of the country which is in the west central part of idaho and one thing led to another in in, in trying to understand the language and 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 and, and trying to be successful, and like most people that didn't know anything about elk hunting, it wasn't like I started killing elk right off at the, in my early years because I didn't. And, you know, it was just a struggle. I rifle hunted and killed elk. There was no question about that. And, and it wasn't what I was really looking for. And what really turned the tables for me is my son, when he was five years old, I started taking him out archery hunting. And... It was just he had such a desire like I did when when I was older that I couldn't believe it. He wanted to do everything with me. And as soon as he got to be 12 years old and could actually shoot a bow, well, he's 39 now. So this was a long time ago. And he, he it really embedded that in me because of his interest that I pursued it even further and further and further. Now, these days, it's been a little over 35 years total that I actually have, uh, you know, dipped into the elk vocalization, uh, the behavior of elk. And the more I did, the more I realized, wow, what a broad spectrum this was, you know, because really you stop and think about elk talk, vocalization, you think cow calls, bugles, really. It, it, and that's where most people's vocabulary ends right there. They don't realize that there's a lot of different bugles and a lot of different cow calls. And each one represents a different message that the elk are sending in a, in a manner of communication just like we do and where the message changes with elk is like our conversation here the enthusiasm can change the message even though the words are the same and so our urgency or demand or hurry up or slow down and 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 that's all they're really doing you see you'll notice that cows have a cadence to their cow tones and bulls have an intensity and when you see that that is what changes the message even though all bull sounds sound like a bugle well one thing led to another like that as far as uh, when i first got started and and as far as how elk nut outdoors came as as we kind of just jump up to that platform there uh 26 years ago we really started getting into the, the elk vocalization heavier and heavier and heavier, realizing what an impact it made on our hunts. And it just, it, it stemmed from there. People started seeing that my son and I, even when he was 12, Paul killed his first bull at 12 and his next one at 13 with a bow, 14, 15, 16, 17, 26 straight years. Wow. And so people are like, how in the heck are you guys? And these are all over the counter bulls. 
every single one. And so they're like, how are you guys doing this? And so I started to explain to them early on that it was through elk vocalization. We understood what they were saying. And so we tried to just use sounds in return that they would expect to hear on that level of communication. And so it wasn't that they were just, you know, elk, get, they get disciplined and educated when you're hunting over the counter and they hear everything out there. But when you can fit in and you try to use sounds that they only expect to hear during each specific encounter, we realized that we were just continually getting them into bow range. And to date, my son and I, I don't even know what the number is, but we've called probably between 1,000 and 1,500 bulls, over-the-counter bulls to bow range inside 40 yards over this period of time with everybody else out there calling. And so, you know, I see... Today, I see people saying, you can't call elk, you can't bugle elk, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, you know, to some degree, they're right if you're not not willing to learn and educate yourself instead of educating the elk. And if you'll do that, you will see such a vast turnaround and, and, and a positive and confident attitude that you can actually do these things right in the heaviest heaviest pressured areas there are. And that's what we hunt. We hunt all over the counter, but yet we still continually kill elk every year. And there's five of us that actually got together 26 years ago, you know, just as buddies. And then there was a two, the second year, then the third and the fourth. And now it's all of a sudden it's 26 years, you know, and, and, and the, and us, us as a group, we've killed 185 elk now in that 26 year period. And so, Dang, you know, that's impressive. <laughs> you know, it's more than just lucky, like, oh, you guys got lucky here, or you guys got lucky there, or you're hunting private ranches or private gr- We're not. We hunt where everybody else hunts. And we feed off each other. And I bet you guys can even recognize the fact if you hang around with guys and hunt with guys that are successful, it just it's going to rub off on you because you all start sharing the things that worked or the things that didn't work or or what's working best that year or or you know how's the rut going and 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 maybe if you're getting frustrated because of the way a particular year is going you have somebody in the group to encourage you to push you and to encourage you or or even tell you to come on i know an area i've already got my elk and i'll show you where some are and, and we'll go there together i mean all that really helps so don't think it's oh it's just paul and he's the one sharing everything everything no way man it's a group thing these guys i hunt with are they're good hunters they're strong they're very smart but it, it but we feed off of each other but it all stemmed from this elk vocalization thing and i shared it all with them and so as a group believe me they add to it as well but it's the fact that we take so many animals and our track record is is, is very you know it's very it's an interesting record and especially like i say where we're getting it done and as far as that goes, it all led into the DVDs and the CDs, and then I wrote a book, and, and, it, and, it, and it kind of all stemmed to there to where I felt when I'm with my son, it meant so much to me, even at an early age, to create that bond and to see the interest he had that I wanted to con- continue it on. And now, now I look past that in a manner of if I can help the next father to hunt with his son or his daughter or his wife or their friends and they can enjoy the same success that we've enjoyed and the bond and and look how long i mean i still look at every elk season that's going to be upon us in a couple of weeks like it was my first i really do and i hope that 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 never dies off or fades and and and, and it keeps to you know and it keeps growing like that and if we can share that through information 
that these individuals, because when you start calling elk in and you see it working, it inspires you. It motivates you. You want to get better. You want to be better caller, a better stalker, a, a better understander of the vocalization, knowing when to call, knowing when not to call, because not every situation is a calling situation. So, you know, people need to understand that there's a time for both and your country, the terrain you hunt. How pressured is it? All these things come into play. Sometimes very little said is the best thing you can do. Other times, you're not calling enough. And I can tell you from, from experience over the years and given – I mean I've given seminars for almost the last 20 years all over the place. And, and to me, the number one problem people have today, the reason people have difficulty in hunting and calling elk, I don't care if it's draw tag or over-the-counter or private, people – hunters do not call enough that's their number one problem and i'll tell you why that is the internet people listen to all the joe blows on the internet to say that you can't call elk or you should only call call or if the elk aren't talking then you don't talk when an elk bugles mimic you know they hear all this stuff confusing everyone's always saying you're gonna over educate them don't call too much you're gonna educate the elk yeah you're gonna run them off and 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 so people feed off of that yeah, and it seems more like if you're making the appropriate sounds in the appropriate places, elk are vocal animals, and they're not going to just give up on vocalizing with each other. It doesn't matter if there's other hunters or wolves or uh, what's in the area. They're still going to communicate. Yeah, you know, especially when the rut's going on. And when, when somebody re- for, uses a phrase as, the rut's happening, what they're really saying is, whether they realize it or not, is that cows are coming into estrus. So whether a cow's coming into estrus or in heat, in heat it's the same exact uh, term. There's nothing different between the, a cow coming in heat or estrus, just so we get that out of the way. Because I like saying heat a lot because it's quicker and easier. <laughs> and it just is. You, it, it's like that's the only word you use instead of coming into estrus and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, so – once you start understanding that, there is so much more to elk hunting. And believe me, I like to keep it simple. But at the same time, there is no one or two things that you can incorporate and they'll handle every situation. It just doesn't work that way. And I'm more of the hunter and teacher that I want people to understand that every elk you come across can be called in. And that is my approach, especially hunting you know, over-the-counter you may hear one bull a, a day for five days. You may hear one bull in five days. And so what this tells me as an over-the-counter hunter is that I need to take advantage of every single bull I come across. And that's what I'm interested in these days, although, you know, spikes and, and cows were fine in the beginning. But now, you know, a lot of people are interested in bulls or, or, or hunt areas where you can only hunt branch antler bulls. So you need to know how to tailor your sounds that attract bulls over cows or spikes, or you need to know how to tailor your sound or your sequence that's only going to attract cows or spikes. You see, so you can go either way, cows, spikes, bulls, herd bulls. I mean, we have tactics for every single one. And if, and if you gave me an encounter and said, here's what's happening, I would share with you what I felt was your best odds of calling that particular bull or calling your way to that bull. So, you know, a lot of it has to do with the terrain. So knowing how to hunt elk and being consistent every year, year in and year out, you better be a versatile hunter. Being a one-dimensional hunter 
will really handcuff you these days. You know, unless you just have some special property or something, or or maybe you have physical inabilities and you have to tree stand hunt or something of that nature. And I understand that. You know, that's a different, you know, a facet of, of knowledge altogether, uh, different. But you know what I mean. Sure. Well, speaking to our audience, you know, we're 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 traditional guys. We're right. hunting with long long bows and recurves, and I know that. Uh, Doesn't you, everybody? Right. I know you. <laughs> you, you you and your son uh, have went from the compound and and then went and, and hunted traditional for a while and have gone back and forth. And uh, you told me um, earlier this week that you guys are back to shooting longbows and cedar arrows. Why don't you touch on that a little bit and. Uh, maybe touch on, you know, we're obviously looking for the closest shots possible as trad guys. We're looking for those 5, 10, 15, 20-yard shots. So maybe touch on that a little bit. Well, yeah, no, it's true. And 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 we have, we've we've taken elk with, uh, you know, with, with the recurve, longbow, muzzleloader, uh, compounds, rifle, with just about everything imaginable out there. But, you know, there's something special about uh, hunting with trad gear there really is it's like you create that bond with uh, the bow and, and and maybe that's just my son and i i don't know but we have that and you don't have that kind of a bond with your compound yeah. I, I i mean just don't it's like it's there it's a tool you're going to use it and the range is almost endless and you know that's cool there's nothing wrong with that you know if a person wants to hunt with compounds or or trad gear i've never been a snob in that area so you know i don't want people to think i am but i do realize that when i when i grab that longbow if there's just something about that that it's almost like an extension of me and i and i feel like there's a personal connection does that sound weird are you guys like that at all <laughs> that's for sure definitely no, I'm, I'm serious we never talked about this like you know i want the audience to know i mean this is like i'm just wondering if there's are there are you folks the same way for sure yeah i i've switched yeah. back and forth for years too um a lot due to shoulder injuries and and mm. yeah there's there's just nothing like it for me and I think some people are like that and some people aren't. So I know James has got the same bug. <laughs> yeah. I mean, once I learned to uh, commit to the traditional bow, I sold off the compound gear and I'm head first. I, uh, for the last seven years, going on eight uh, trad equipment, wood arrows, long bows, recurves. I, I love it. I can't get enough of it. And, and it's like an intimate connection you have with the, the bow and arrow. Um, I'd once read where someone said shooting a compound is learning a shooting system and shooting a longbow is becoming that shooting system. That's, that's kind of how, I, like that's how I feel about it. Yeah. You know, and it's so true there. And, and, and not only that, as you, as you look further into that crystal ball, so to speak, being an individual myself, and, and I know there's many out there that can appreciate this too is 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 being able to take animals with a lot of different things i can definitely tell you right now 100% straight from my heart that there's a different excitement when they're you're standing over an elk or an or a deer anything with your longbow or 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 recurve or selfbow whatever you have there's something special about that because you work for it I mean, I I was telling James this here earlier in the week that I can remember the first time I picked up the longbow. And it was funny because I picked up the longbow in Ju- in July, in the early uh, first week of July. 
this was, you, you know, uh, 10 years ago or so, 10 to 11 years ago. And I'd never even sh- shot a longbow in my life. Well, I decided I was going to try it. And, 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 and I ended up getting decent with it, pretty proficient with it in my own expectations. I was going to hunt with that longbow. And I felt very, very confident with it out to 35 yards in, in, in that short a span. And it was a 60-pound uh, compound at 28, and I draw 27. And I had a little bit of difficulty at first, but it didn't take much. It was, it was a 60-pound 60 60 pound longbow. Yes. What did I yeah. say? You said compound. Oh, I'm sorry. 60-pound okay. uh, longbow, and it was a bear's paw longbow, and I had bought and used. But, but anyway, I, I, I decided that that's what I was going to hunt with, and lo and behold, it took me – I had seven different bulls that I called in under 40 yards, well under, and I could not release one arrow, nothing. It was because of the, the angle – or the window of opportunity was so small that I knew the trajectory of my arrow just from shooting so much was uh, it was going to be very limited. I would have to have a lot of luck on my side to squeeze some of those arrows through. And 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 some of the, the like I say, the angles, it wasn't really a wind issue, but it was just the debris and things where as man, if I had the compound, I'd zip that thing right through there. <laughs> but it was a is a different mind. Set. You know, it's like this ethical angel is sitting on your shoulder, <laughs> letting you know that this is not a smart decision if you're going to let this arrow go. And I mean, I passed five to six uh, point bulls, seven of them, before I finally was able to take, and I shot a herd bull with that. And I shot him, at, I believe it was 28, yeah, 28 yards. And talk about, it was so, I was so excited. Because it was a very special. You guys want me to tell you the story real quick? I, yeah, I know yeah, I didn't tell. For yeah, for sure, for sure. Here's what happened. I mean, this was just absolutely awesome. My son was with me, and we were coming up over this knob that we had elk hunted in the past, and we were probably maybe a half a mile from uh, from the rig. And as we're cresting up there, we're getting up over the top of this little hill. It was a big meadow on top, and we climbed maybe. I'm going to say five or 600 foot in elevation. And as we got up there, it was just at daylight. And so I'm sitting right on the edge of this meadow and I'm thinking, boy, it's probably 10 acres, maybe 10, 12 acres meadow. And then it goes timber circling the whole entire thing and then drops abruptly right off, off every side. So you can kind of get the idea we're right up on this little knob with, a, with, with some green grass on it. And as we crested, I thought, well, I think I'm going to go ahead and bugle here. This looked like a really good bugle spot just to, to see if there's anything around that would respond and i didn't i kind of just held off there him and i he's holding the recurve i'm holding the longbow and we move into the meadow we go maybe 30 40 feet and i decide i'm going to go on to the other side of the meadow i'm going to cross it and then i'm going to call is what what the, what was going on there so as we get into this meadow 30 or 40 feet or you know roughly as we're going we saw movement just in the edge of the timber over there and so we both dropped down now, we're sitting there on our knees. My son is right behind me, close enough to touch my shoulder. We're just there motionless. We have our – he has his recurve with, with one of the limbs in the ground, and I have mine with me on one knee with it in front of me, and I'm looking through my quiver. I, can't, I have a, a Selway quiver on it with arrows, and I'm looking through it, and I can see cows, and they're just on the other side of that opening. And I'm going to estimate they were 80, 90 yards away you know, roughly, and I see them start to – filter into this meadow and it's just right at daylight and i see one two three four five a couple of calves jump out and these calves are running around jumping everywhere 
I mean, they're boxing, they're playing. And this, and one of the cows, as she come out, she get about 50 yards from me and she is staring us down. We are in the Walmart parking lot. There is nothing. We are sitting in this, this grass is about 18 inches tall and we're kneeling. Not, and I, and I mean, I must've said this to my son a hundred times. I kid you not. And I'm saying, don't move, don't move nothing. Don't move a muscle. I don't even have an arrow out of my quiver. We just got caught. And so we're sitting there and I watch these cows coming and they keep walking, walking every once in a while as they're walking, they stop and turn and abruptly and look, stare right at us. They know something's not right, but the wind was right. They're not, they're not spooking. And so we're just sitting there motionless as they're moving through. I can see them coming across me. They came within. I'm going to say some of them were as close as 15 or 20 feet. No, I'm not kidding you. They were that close, but the wind held up and we did not budge an inch. I'm slowly pulling an arrow out of my quiver as slow as I could. It felt like I was trying to jerk 150 pounds out of there. You ever tried to slide an arrow out so slow without being noticed <laughs> out through the rubber on the bottom? And I'm trying to get it out of the, out of the foam, out of the top and the rubber on the, and being so slow while the cows aren't looking and they're walking everywhere. They're feeding feet, no bull. And they're just dinking all in. There's nine of them in, in, in all. And I'm sitting there thinking, i got to get an arrow. I know there's a bull over there. He's got to be. And so I finally get the arrow kind of break loose out of there. And I just freeze with the arrow in my right hand, not moving. Nothing noticed. Nothing. And so I'm slowly, I mean, we're talking four, five, six minutes have gone by as I'm slowly trying to get this arrow across my shelf and knocked without anything noticing me and it's taking this long and it felt like i had a tremendous weight in my hand and it was an arrow but that's how much pressure and tension i was under you know of trying not to be noticed and these cows kept milling and feeding i mean they're right there there was nothing beyond 20 yards from us but they kept looking at us and then they'd go back like everything was okay and all of a sudden i caught movement off the edge of the meadow and here come the bull he walked to the edge of that meadow. He didn't walk five feet in it, and he locked right onto us. He's just staring. I'm like, oh no, you know what? Do you, I mean, I'm already sitting there. Just the anticipation was overwhelming. It was just crazy, and I'm sitting there watching this bull, and I'm thinking, man, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? I have my arrow knocked now. I've got it on there, and I shoot three three fingers under. So I had a tab and I'm just sitting there and I'm sure I'm shaking a little bit too, just because it was just that situation. Well, I didn't want to shoot the cow. It was legal to shoot one, but I wanted the bull. And so I watched this bull and he starts coming forward. He's walking toward the cows. He's getting between them, between me and, and he's on the other side of the cows. No shot. He gets probably 20, 22 yards at times and I can't do anything, nothing. And so all of a sudden he turns and he walks away from the group and he walks away and he's standing over their broadside. And at that point, he was roughly 28 yards. And I'm telling myself, but he, he could see me with the corner of, uh, of his left eye as he's standing away from me. And I'm thinking, if he gives me the opportunity, I am going to, you know, draw anchor and fire. I'm not going to pay one bit of attention to the cows. I can't worry that once I move, are they going to just explode? I didn't know what they were going to do. And so I'm sitting there and this bull is standing there broadside. He's just standing there. And I could not draw at that situation at that time. All of a sudden, a bull bugled. I mean, he must have bugled a half a mile away, away from the bull. He turned his head to look that direction. And when he did, all I could think of, that's it. You know, I mean, it was just an instinctive reaction. I drew, anchored. And when I did, I was just waiting for cows to explode. They never moved an inch. Nothing. I anchored. I held. I let it go. And I watched that arrow hit the bull. 
And I can remember my son being right behind me, and he goes, Dad, you drilled him. You drilled him right in the heart. And you know, I'm like, and I'm like, I saw the arrow hit, but I really was, it happened fast. And I hit the bull. I see him turn and run completely out of the meadow, exactly where he came from. And all those cows are still standing there. Nothing. They didn't even move. And I'm just staring at him like, what the heck? I just knew it was going to be, you know, a chaotic catastrophe, but it wasn't. All of a sudden, he ran out of sight, and all those cows ran exactly where he did. I could see I'm, – I'm creeping up a little bit to watch, and I see the cows hit the timber, nothing. And then all of a sudden, I see the cows file out to the right-hand side. I could just see their backs going out, and he never came through. So I'm thinking, wow. We're going to wait. I'm not going to just go running over there and run him down that, that mountain just in case, you know. So we wait there probably the hardest 20, 30 minutes of my life because I really thought it was a good shot. And so did my son. He saw it real clear. We walk over there to right where the air, where, where, uh, where, where the impact was. There was no blood. We went about 10 or 15 yards, and that was the first blood I had found right there. And I was actually shooting one of the Wenzel Woodsmen before they came out with the Elite. I was shooting that three-blade. And so – and, I, and the arrow had actually buried to the fletching at, at, at the – and I'm probably shooting 55, 56 pounds because I don't draw a full 28. I go over there into the timber, and there's that bull piled up. I could not believe it. And, and the arrow was still – the fletching was still sticking out of him, and it did. It went right through the top of his heart. Uh-huh. But it was just that whole experience of having all these other bulls, in the, and this comes, and I mean and, – and I didn't even call this bull in. It, it was just dumb luck. We hit right there. They come into the meadow. But I t- tell you what, when that took place, that almost sold me. And I had already taken so many elk with a compound. It was n- nothing like that experience. And and I bet you guys can relate to that. Absolutely. So basically uh, what, what put this bull on the ground for you was the, the patience to to not move and let this situation play out. Would you say that's correct? Hundred percent, and as a matter of fact, I think just basically hunting with with the longbow or recurve, I noticed that I have to exercise ten times the patience that I would not have ever done with the compound. You know, and being able and being one that has hunted with both, I can see uh, how things have played out. And I have to, I mean, I, and I'm not a patient person. You guys have heard me talk. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I try to develop patience, but I'm very hyper individual. I've been that way my whole life. And so to try to, to pull the reins back a little bit, it's been tough, but I realize that it's something I have to do if, you know, I'm going to enjoy some success with it. Absolutely. Um, and so why don't we get into, vocalizations sure um so let's say it's august 26th i know uh archery season opens in oregon august 26th saturday i think colorado opens august 26th this year i'm not sure uh when idaho opens isn't it like the first of september 30th 30th. so yeah we've got a pretty early opener this year um it's you know opening morning are are you going to be out there uh locating the night before with location bugles, uh, you know, walk us through how that first, uh, couple days, first week of season looks for you guys. Well, you know, in, 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 in when, when a person's considering, okay, what's going to help them up their odds to take an elk the first several days of the season. First, I think people need to put things in perspective. What are they willing to shoot? 
you know, not everybody's going to say I need to kill a six point or whatnot. A lot of people are trying to just take their first elk or second elk or whatever that is. And so when I'm using a tactic or a sequence, it's because I'm targeting certain elk. I, you know, years ago, I didn't realize you could do any of that. I just figured you go out there and you called and what came in, came in. That's how it is. And I, and as time went on and years went by and I learned more through the communication and what sounds represented to the elk, I started realizing that I could tailor my calling to bring in a specific elk, meaning, you know, there's nothing written in stone, but your odds or your percentages increase by using specific sounds or sequences that will bring in mostly cows and spikes. Then there's also calling sequences that are going to target branch antler bulls. There's calling sequences that target primarily the herd bull. And so this is how we break this down. So if I'm going in early season, let's say that I'm a newer hunter, and because I think we should incorporate everybody here and, and not just, uh, I want to kill branch antler bull, nothing else, because it doesn't help everyone. But if I was going to go out and I just wanted to try to call elk in and have an opportunity at killing elk outside of saying I'm going to sit a tree stand or a ground blind at a water hole or a wallow we all are familiar with those and yes those can be uh, you know some uh, good destination areas to to hunt elk early season because that's when they really hit these things the most it's usually pretty hot at that time but if you're going to get into calling situations and you decide, I want to call an elk in. And I believe me, I get a ton of emails and phone calls about that. I Okay, yeah, I can kill elk doing this or this or this, but I want to call them in. Okay, your target elk, any elk, I'm going to go straight to a blind or cold calling sequence. That's ex- exactly what I'm going to use. Because on a blind or cold calling sequence, the reason you're doing it is because you're really not hearing vocalization out there. So you're trying to prompt curiosity. And you're trying to do what? You're trying to bring elk to a spot that they really have no intention of going to. It's not like you're sitting in their bedroom or sitting in their feeding area. A lot of times we're, we're trolling for elk, just like a fish. You're out there, you're trolling, you're covering a lot of water, and boom, you finally get one. And then you go back over that same spot because there's usually a school of them. So when you're elk hunting, you need to know where that school is. Where's those? Where are those elk? And, there's, and what determines that is the time of day you're hunting. If you're the first hour of daylight, where are the elk? They're near their feeding area. That's where they're at. They're not in the bedding area. So if you're going to go try a cold, uh, a cold calling sequence in the bedding area, you're probably going to strike out time and time again because they're not there. So you have to make sure the time of day when you're using sounds, the elk are within earshot. Makes sense. It's common sense, really. So that's what you're doing. And so if, if I'm going to get within that uh, feeding area and try to pull elk over to me because maybe I can't slip in silently or I don't even know if they're there for sure. I'm going to set up a sequence that's going to prompt them to, to come, come over and check me out. And why are they going to do that? Because elk are herd animals. Elk have to know who other elk are in their area. Just like horses. You ever see horses in the field and there's another one a quarter mile away? They'll rubberneck and try to stretch that fence out to its max to see who this other horse is. Because they're a herd animal. And cattle are the same way. But elk... They can. They have no restrictions. So when they hear something of their species, they need to know who it is. They just have that in them. They're so curious. And so elk know each other by sound, sight, or smell. So when we come in and represent somebody new, boom, it automatically strikes their curiosity. So what? when I'm setting up 
a blind or cold calling sequence area, I'm, I'm very uh, aware of my areas. If, if I'm an hour and a half, two hours after daylight, I know I have to catch them in transition on the trails that they're going to use from bedding, from feeding to bedding. After 930, I know I got to be near the bedding area. So only that's where they're at. So I got to make sure I tailor my calling according to the time of the day that I'm doing my calling. So it's very important. You just don't walk out there and do blind cold calling all day and, and, and be where there's no ill. So really think about that as a hunter, that when you do your calling, you're where the elk should be. And, and again, there's no guarantees, but your odds are up, up you know, tremendously by having elk that can hear you within earshot. So what I'm going to do is go through a calling sequence of, of, of cow chirps, some calf meat, use sometimes i'll throw in a little spike squeal or something you know what this isn't i'm not trying to do a breeding sequence big difference between a breeding sequence and a cold calling setup a cold calling setup is just letting them know that other elk are there in the area you're not really asking them to come over you're just letting them know so i like doing this more in the timbered areas uh where where uh everything is tight because when elk come your way i like to make sure that I'm always in an area where my setup is I can't see any more than 40 yards. That So if I can't see, the elk can't see. So I force them. This is how we call you know, these 1 to 2,000 elk in over our lifetime is you force elk into search mode. If you allow an elk to get 70, 80, 90 yards and to be able to look through obstruction, timber, brush, whatever, to see where the source is coming from and they see nothing. That's where they hang up right there. And I learned that the hard way over the years. And I started to appreciate. So not only do you do a calling sequence that can attract them, your setup is equally as important is what, is what I'm trying to say here. You got to make sure that you force those elk into search mode that they cannot see you where the sound is coming from until they're in within range. Right. Because elk, elk don't hide from elk, right? No, and they're so hard to it's so hard for a human to do this. I've taken over two hundred people elk hunting over the years, and everybody wants to see out. They want to see a hundred yards, 150 yards. They want to see the elk coming. And and who does it? You know, we all want to see this approach, but that is what kills them. That is why those elk stop and hang up, you know, encounter after encounter after encounter. And then they run on the internet and complain and 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 they blame their calls. Oh, it was my call. It was my bugle. Uh, my buddy bugled too big, or he didn't cow call right. You know, and maybe sometimes that does happen, but you know how few those really are? It's they were either seen or they were smelled or their setup was horrible. And so it, it, it's kind of a conglomeration of things. But when you start putting those things aside and you start realizing that this is why these elk aren't coming in is because of your setup way more than what your calling is by far that is when you can when you can avoid that and, and get and take that out of the equation you will see you have a lot more call-ins and the thing about a blind cold calling for early season don't expect elk to respond to you this is where patience can really pay off because so many times you will call elk in that don't make a sound they just show up i mean you can be sitting there doing nothing calling and the next thing you know there's an elk 20 yards away he never heard us, never heard one pop from him coming in or cows. I mean, I've called so many elk in doing this. I don't even count those. 
you know, that where I said we've called a thousand to fifteen. I'm not even counting cows and spikes. Uh, this is bulls. And so when these guys come in, it's just crazy how many can come in as a group or sometimes it's just two or three or four of them. But they just slip in. And most of the time they're not on edge. They come straight to the call. And if your calling is done right and your setup is good, I can tell you that in most cases, those elk will not, not try to come in downwind on you. The only type of elk that really come in downwind is when you've created suspicion in them. When when you've done something that's not quite right, that is when they start to circle you. But in most cases, they come straight into your calling, and they're rubbernecking, and they're looking, looking, looking. They're not afraid of anything. You can tell by their mannerisms and their behavior. As they come in, they're merely looking for the elk that they heard. And so cold calling setups with the, with a, with a lot of uh, uh, chatter, rustling the brush with your feet, your hands stick, creating that in their mind's eye that they can almost see those elk without seeing them. So I don't like to just sit there and make some calls and be totally silent. No, I try to rattle the brush, like I say, and kick things. Maybe even smack a tree and rake a little with a little bull squeal as he's feeling his oats you so see and that, this is what he'll do what, what does that sound like paul like what what are this can you make some of these sounds that you're doing on these cold calling setups early yeah. season yeah you know and it, it's really simple i can't rake and rattle brush so you'll have to improvise in your mind's eye that part <laughs> of it but but as far as the calling goes what i like to do when I'm starting this blind or cold calling setup is I generally get to the area I want to hunt. I look the area over really quick, you know, because remember, I'm not hearing any elk. They're not bugling and cow calling everywhere. And so it's not like you get to a certain spot. Okay, they're just right there. No, you get to about where you hope they're back. They're within 150, 175 yards. That's all you have to be. You don't have to be right on top of these elk. And most of them at that time, if you're in a bedding area, let's say, then they're not on their feet. So it takes more calling to get them up or you have to wait for them to get up so you know you have to take all this into into perspective and that's why patience is so important who doesn't want to throw a few calls out and they come storming in i mean we all we all all do but in most cases that's not really what happens they come in at their own due time it's we we as humans that put this time frame and these expectations and if they don't show up in 10 minutes i'm out of here you know those are shortcomings that we have to work on and, and hopefully uh uh, exercise more patience stay there because this is not a run and gun where you're bugling and waiting for bull stancer you're setting up calling you're trying to bring l over even if it's a destination like a water area and trails running into it, you know they come there sooner or later this cold calling setup letting them know it's a safety zone everything's okay there's elk over there already even if they don't know them and this is this is way to create curiosity out of elk instead of bumbling through dark timber and hoping one pops up and you can, you know, get a 20-yard shot with your longbow. I mean, it, those are just coin flips. I mean, it really doesn't happen. You're much better off to get the elk to do the moving in their due time and come your way. Your odds go up tremendously when you're the one frozen and they're doing the moving so as when, opposed to the opposite. When you're talking patience, Paul, say um, you get in a spot in the morning and you know you're catching them from their bedding or from their feeding area to their bedding area that's your plan you set up the cold call are you sitting there for an hour two hours what's well you know when i'm going to call i'm i'm going to call i'm usually going to come in real weak with my calls real slow like these elk are entering the area you don't come in and just give them both barrels all of a sudden of 15 20 cow calls you know usually you just give a little bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more and i'm that's that's why i like casting the 
sound behind me or to my side, like the elk are just filtering into this area. So you're trying to be natural. So if, if I was to call kind of away from the microphone a little bit, it would be kind of a... And so I just kind of start like that. Maybe I'll let it go for 30 seconds or so, really not say anything. But believe me, those elk that are over there, you got their attention. They're not running over to you, but you got their attention. It's, oh, there's elk over there. And they don't know who you are. And so that's what you're doing. You're basically planting the seed of elk coming in. And so then I'll just turn more toward the direction I think the elk should be. And I'll keep up the call a little bit. And again, I like casting my sound so it sounds like you know, they're, they're different elk and I'll change the pitch a little bit, trying to sound like a different elk. And if there's two of you calling that really even sells it that much more, if you get 20, 25 yards apart and you're casting your sounds kind of randomly kind of, So I mix up the tones like that. See, as they're starting to talk and meander and move in, they get real vocal at times. You know, a lot of times people, they'll just make a few little soft little sounds and that's it. They're done. But but no, get creative with your sounds like that. Lengthen them out. Shorten them. Do three or four rapid ones. And there's just a couple little calf calls. And all you're doing is painting that picture that there's a few elk moving into the area. And again, I'm kind of rattling the brush and rustling. I may even walk five or six feet this way at first. If there's water over there, I may go over to that water within the first two minutes or so there. And I'll start splashing it and kicking it. I don't want to do it five or 10, 15 minutes after I've been there because something could come sneaking in during that time span and see me and I'm and I may be oblivious to their existence so I try to do all this real fast splash splash kick splash because elk will do that they'll run to the water and kick and splash make a few sounds bull may be just a short distance away and he's kind of nothing majestic he's just letting his sound out right, right there like i said he's feeling his oats he calls a little bit there the cows knows where the cows know where he is they're still mimicking and talking and a little bit of cow chatter around and i'll do that for four or five minutes and then kind of wind it down a little bit real slow down to nothing maybe wait a minute or two and then i'll just kind of give him a That's about it. Let them know, hey, they're still there. They haven't went anywhere. It's like these elk are hanging and they're holding tight. And so I'll do that a little bit more chatter. Maybe let it die down in a few minutes. Do it again a third time. And with not as much as the first time. Like they just got into the air. Maybe some of them are even laying down right there. Elk will lay right down next to the water holes. Oh, they do it all the time. And they'll stay there for 30, 40 minutes or an hour. They won't move. And I have a lot of video of this where I, where I use it on trail cams. And you'll see, you won't believe how long they'll stay at a spot at times. So this is nothing unusual for these other elk. And so when I create this environment that there's a safe haven down there and there's already elk over there, when these other elk that I hope are there, and especially from fresh sign or knowing the elk are in the area, it will absolutely pick them up once they get up. And they'll just slip your way and they just come in and they hardly ever make a sound. They're not calling their way into. If they do, dude, that's a bonus because it rarely happens. Early season especially, they just start slipping in. 
And so that's the kind of the sounds that we're using. It's just kind of it's a cold or blind calling setup or sequence. And this is generally used when the elk are not very vocal. So, again, this is nothing like a breeding sequence. This so is a cold calling are, sequence. Are you trying to get like six or seven of these in in a day if things are slow? Like are you staying there for an hour and then moving on to another area and doing it again or – you know, we will move, move a little bit, but no, we never do that many of them. I mean, for the most part, when we're using a, a, a sequence like that, and again, if I know my area is fairly decent, I know where the elk usually like to hang out or where they're going to bed. And so I'm, I'm usually you're only doing one or two of those. You're not doing very – and they could, you're going to have elk come in. Oh, yeah, they, they are so curious unless you've never really done it and held tight. And when I, once I'm doing that, I usually – will hold tight in that area for very close to an hour this is not a running gun situation this is trying to draw in any elk you see because you don't know what's going to come in sure. what's most likely going to come in cows and spikes why is that there's way more of those out there than there are branch antler bulls there's not even close to as many bulls out there so your odds are that that's what's going to show up so in that situation and that blind cold calling setup right there, if you want to call elk in, this is one way to do it. I mean, what if you walked out there in, in August the 28th and you saw three or four cows just walking, you know, diddling around, not doing anything. And they walk into the timber and they're 200 yards away. And you go, man, there's elk. I mean, I'd like to call those elk over here. Well, I'll tell you what I do to call those. And I've done this a lot of times just for fun is I try to get a little bit closer if I can. I'll use the cover in my way, but I make sure those elk go into the the cover first once they're hidden i will go and and, and kind of uh stay even with them i'm not really going at them i'm just kind of staying even parallel because they're moving away from me and, and immediately i go into the separated cow calling immediately and this is really good early season is i'll go into that separated i'll hold there for maybe two minutes and then i walk away from them and go the opposite direction and keep moving and calling, moving and breaking things, hitting the brush and calling frantically. Like, I don't know where they're at. Where's the group? I know you're here somewhere. And you cannot believe how many times those cows come right back. They come right over to you. And, I mean, I have called so many elk in doing that. And that and, and what that little separated sound is, it, it, and what she does, what, what, these cow, what this cow is doing is just trying to find the group. And with these elk just right there. You think that they may try to call you back over to them, and they rarely do it. Instead, they come over your way. And as I'm, go as I'm calling through the brush, I usually will have a sound that's more of this manner here, looking for aid, looking for uh, assistance, a direction. And that's what this sound is going to do. what they'll do and as they do that and you keep moving away you don't have to run if i'm by myself when i'm doing that i usually will go 70 or 80 yards that far and then i hustle back real fast and don't move just wait there where you, you first started your calling and here they come right back up to you it, it, I, I don't know if you guys have ever tried sounds like that or any little sequences but it is it, it's absolute dynamite and, and especially early season when there's not much going on two years ago we were hunting, and we come, we come across this little trail. My son and I had already been in about two miles. We hadn't heard nothing. We'd been bugling, running, and gunning with, with location bugles, and our location bugle is kind of like this. 
So you can see it's really non-intimidational. We're just trying to cover ground and sound and trying to get something to respond. We weren't really having any luck at all for the first couple hours. We hit this trail because there's a lot of game trails out in the woods, you know, and they're heavy timber like that. And we could see fresh tracks. It looked like three or four elk had just went down. I mean, they had barely went down. And I told them, I said, those elk are right here. Maybe there's a bull with them. Let's see if we can call them back right here. So we set up. We both traded cow calls. Back and forth for about, I'm going to say, 30, 40 seconds. And so now I went straight to the contact buzz. Now, the contact buzz is asking other elk that are in that area to come over. Now, this is a direct message, like if your kids were in the woods and you go, Hey, Jim, Julie, John, get over here right now. You're not just talking a human voice. Now you're asking for them to make an action out of them. And that's what that does. And so in addition to us of just making some uh, chirps like this, Threw in those sounds right there. That's asking these elk to come over there. For, that's an, it's looking for assistance. I, I did this for probably three or four minutes with my son both going back and forth. And here come two cows and a calf right from the direction that they had left from or, you know, had went down. When they turned around and came right back. As they came back, I'm sitting off the trail I probably only sitting off the trail, not even 10 yards, but with the wind in my face. And they walked exactly to where I had made those those calls. I mean, they stood right there looking, looking, looking. I mean, they're looking right past us, but we're hidden. We're not standing out in the open. And they came right there, looked, and when they didn't see us and weren't sad and, and were satisfied we weren't there, they went walking down the trail even further from, you know, from the direction that they had originally came from, not where they had just came from. And they went down in search mode looking for those elk. But I'm just showing you is, is that you can do things like this. And what if a bull would have been with him? He'd yeah. have been in tow. He'd have came right with him. And so those are the things, you know, that, that we try to incorporate and play, play with, you know, a lot of times in early season. So we like using sounds that require assistance or aid from other elk so when we're doing these calling setups a lot of times you know if it's elk we we know we're there because we saw them now we'll tailor so you notice i didn't do a blind cold calling setup right there of just normal uh, elk talk no i asked for assistance i asked for direction you see i'm asking for for something to come over my way and that is a sound right there that is really good if i would have stayed with nothing but cow sounds who knows Maybe they would have came back. Maybe they wouldn't. But I do know when I use that contact buzz, I pull way more elk back from where they came from. And, 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 and if you guys have hunted elk long enough, you'll know that it's very difficult to pull elk back from where they just came from minutes earlier. They don't like doing that. And so it's yeah, just something there to consider. I, I've, con- I've experienced that contact buzz in all months of the year. You know, I remember calling you one time on the phone and, it was like, man, I think it was in the spring, and I had a a, a cow and some calves searching for me. Uh, I was giving uh, them the contact buzz, and they were giving it back, and they were just mm-hmm. moving through the brush just trying to get to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely a very powerful sound. What happened? Uh, <laughs> uh, they Eventually, they they found me. and, and uh <laughs> Yeah, they, they came. They came all the way in. They actually crossed a creek and through the brush and got up to where I was at. And I was just out in the woods uh, doing some uh, habitat. I was working in the woods, oh, and I'll, I ha- I'll have an elk call with me, and I'll just kind of 
call elk in year round and and observe them and see how they respond to uh different vocalizations that i've learned from you um so it seems like you talked about the running and gunning and uh the co- and the uh location bugles it seems like a lot of my hunting i'm i'm going to go out and locate at night uh, i'm hunting roosevelts and it's really steep thick brushy country so I'm I'm doing a lot of location bugles, kind of like you're talking about fishing. Like I'm just locating at night, early in the morning. I'm running around doing it all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, is that uh, you know appropriate in in the way you guys are going about it? Oh yeah, you know, and there and that's definitely our ace in the hole. We generally don't do it a lot unless we go a couple of days. And not getting into anything. There's not much talking. Then we'll resort to an hour and a half or so before daylight. And we'll go and call. Because the purpose behind it is that when you find an elk at night or an hour and a half or so before daylight, that's where they'll be come daylight. They don't go anywhere. And so you can bank on that. But we have so many areas you know, that we try to hunt uh, throughout the year or throughout the month that we know are pretty good. And, and, and so from that standpoint, we're usually running and gunning. We're moving and calling, moving and calling. But we're, what we're not trying to do is call elk to us. We're just trying to locate them. The same as if you were on, a, on, a, on an open mountainside looking over a mile or two or three, your glass and elk. You're not trying to call them to you with your glass. You're just trying to find them. And then you go over there and either ambush or hunt them and call them in, whatever is required. Uh, and what dictates that is, is the attitude of the elk. Are there hot cows or are there no hot cows? And to me, as a, as a hunter, people have to understand that, that you need to know the attitude of the elk for that day you're there. You have to. This is what dictates what you're going to do. That's how you kill elk right there. If you, you go in with the same mindset every time, you are not going to have very good odds. You just can't. You say you have a five or seven day hunt. That's all you can hunt the entire month. And you're coming from back east or wherever. doesn't matter. If that's all you can hunt, you need to take advantage of every single day. So when I get out there, let's say it's, it's September the 30th and nothing's going on. I can't get, get anything going on. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to probably do some setups where I am going to, to try to promote myself. I'm going to try to advertise myself to bring elk over to me. And how and, and why would I choose something like that? You see, this is where the study and research of understanding what makes elk tick. This is where it all starts to shine because anybody can get into elk when they're bugling and screaming and the cows are going everywhere. I mean, there's hot cows and they're rutting hard. It's not that tough to find elk. Yeah, we still make mistakes and doesn't mean it's an automatic kill, but you're in them. There's a lot of action and you're building memories. But what about those days? And to me, as an elk hunter, those are the hardest days to hunt elk when they're not really saying anything. So you get up early morning and you get one elk to bugle. This bull bugles three quarters of a mile away. You hear him and you're like, okay, there was a bull. So you're sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. Nothing. You're hoping he bugles again because you're not exactly sure where it came from. That was a long ways away. You know it was over here, but you're not sure. So you're waiting, waiting, nothing. Okay, I'll see if I'll get him to fire off. So you throw out a location bugle of your own. You wait, nothing. Well, I'll give another one. Nothing. Well, I could cow call, but that was so far away, 
probably won't hear them, but I'll do it anyway. What can that hurt? So you fire some cow calls off. Oh, maybe I'll throw another bugle out. Nothing. You're there 10 minutes. Nothing happening. Zero. How do you kill that bull? That's a killable bull right there. We kill bulls like that every single year. Here's how you kill that bull. First of all, you have to understand what makes elk tick. Is there anything running at that time in your area? No. Not a dang thing. How do you know? Because there's no multiple bulls bugling. Yeah. If the if you had a hot cow, there would be a herd bull, first of all, that would be defensive to any other bull around him. You would have two or three satellites harassing that group. That is your signal that there's a hot cow, at least one, that's either nearing estrus or she's in estrus. So these bulls will congregate in that area because they know that hot cow is there now those bulls were there two three days ago maybe you were there and there was nothing going on but those same elk were still there and those bulls weren't bugling this group at all nothing because there was no hot cow now there's a hot cow and so see you can see their their their, their change in their attitude so now you have a bull a herd bull defending keeping these at bay trying to keep controlling of this cow that she doesn't get out of his sight totally different situation we just heard one bull bugle one time that was it we know there's no hot cows so how do we kill that bull am i going to go in and start cow calling that bull no that's not what i'm going to do to kill him because nine times out of ten he is probably not very far from cows already they're herd animals so i already know he's probably around another group somewhere down there and he's feeling his oats he might have bugled from his bed who knows what he did he just gave out a one Big old bugle, and that was all. And you can't provoke him to give another. So you, you got to play on his manhood. And how do you do that? You advertise yourself as a new bull in the area. Try to get within a couple hundred yards of him. If you can get 150, do it. But when you only hear one bugle and he's half a mile to three-quarters of a mile away, it's really tough. So you close the distance, and, like, and he's not saying anything. And you're like, I know he's just, he's over there. He was somewhere in that area. I know he's over there. He can definitely hear me now. So now what I do is I set up and I go through an advertising sequence. Why does that trigger that bull? Because it's September. See, all these bulls need to know where they are in the pecking order. And once they do, they know if there's 10 bulls in the area or seven or eight, where do they fit in the scheme of things? And why is that so important? I'll tell you why. And a lot of people don't realize this, that when a cow comes into heat, if she's not only going to be bred by the herd bull, he will breed her because that's the group she's with. But that cow will also be bred by maybe three or four other bulls. This cow will be bred anywhere from 10 to 12 times in the 12 to 15 hours that she comes into heat. See, a lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, it's just a herd bull breeds her. He's only good for five or six times. That's it. He's toast. There's nothing he can do with that cow after that. He is pretty much spent. He's done everything he can. This cow wants to make sure she conceives. This is why you have these other two or three or four bulls hanging around the group bugling. They're trying to call the cow away from the herd bull. They are not trying to fight the herd bull. Or they yeah. would walk right in and challenge him. They're not so, doing that. So they know they're going to get their turn. Some well, some of them are. Yeah. And so they try to represent dominance and strength in their advertising as they stay with out of distance of striking distance. If they, they got to 60, 70 yards of that herd bull, he would come right at them so quick and push them out of there. 
because yeah. he doesn't want him that close. But when they stay that 150 or more, he tolerates their existence and he warns them to stay back. And so that's what happens. So that's what's going on. So now this bull hears you as a lone bull bugle and he doesn't know where you fit in the scheme of things. Where do you fit in that pecking order? Are you going to bump him down a notch or is he bigger than you? Who is this bull that I have no idea because I know all the bulls in my area. But bulls move around a lot during the rut, whether they're chased by predators, you know, like wolves, bears, mountain lions, hunters. They get pushed around. So it's not unusual for a new bull to come into an area. And he heard that bull bugle. So now he gets over there and he goes through an advertising sequence. This is very common amongst bulls. They're not doing it right next to the road, so a lot of people don't hear it. But when you get out there where they're in a more comfortable area and they're bugling and there's not a lot of hunting pressure because you're just away from the crowds, away from all the trails, these bulls will advertise themselves. They're letting the cows know there's a new kid on the block. They're letting the bulls know that there is another bull in this area to be reckoned with. Is he a competitor? The only way they know is to go see him. And you cannot believe how many bulls we call in doing this. And sometimes they'll come in three or four at a time because they're bachelor groups. But you only heard the one. And so we go through this advertising sequence. And when you do it, you're going to do it anywhere from 15 to 25 minutes before you get an appearance. I, I can't remember one time I ever did it for five or six minutes and, and, and the bull showed up. But I can tell you this, that 80% of the time that bull will show up and he comes straight on the stream. He does not try to get downwind of you or bulls. They just come straight at you. And this is from years and years of doing this, that the norm for them is to come right at you. And so it's something to consider. When things are slow and you hear one bugle, get over there. Be willing to use that advertising where a bull is – and he's not predictable in his calling. He's very creative. He's low. He's high. He's long. He's short. A few chuckles. No chuckles. He may even throw in a short lip ball, and he's raking. He's pawing the ground, and he's just advertising himself in the area for others to take notice. And this does not bring in cows hardly ever. This will, and it, it could bring in not only that bull you heard, but any other bull that might be over there that you were totally unaware of could can come in and check you out. So remember that. That's something for September first, August thirtieth. It doesn't matter. These bulls need to know each other in their area. And this this one, Paul, you want to stay that 150 to 200 yards? You don't want to get any closer because you're no. threatening them? You're not threatening them. Okay. No, you're definitely not threatening or challenging them at all. You're just introducing yourself into the area. And nine times out of ten, what ends up happening is these bulls will usually get 40 to 50 yards away from you. And you'll at times, you'll hear them starting to rake. And they'll rake. And they'll rake a tree. You see, r bulls rake for a lot of different reasons. And most hunters just have it in their mind that bulls rake for a challenge. You it's know, just, a, a, a possible fight. Staging and displaying mostly, right? And they do this a lot. They're doing it right now. They're staging and displaying. Yeah, they'll spar around a little bit as dinks, you know, playing this and that. But bulls size one another up. This is how horses size one another up. They know where each other are, are, fit in the pecking order of things. Bulls do the same thing. And so this bull doesn't know who you are or bulls in the area. So they come over. They come in silent. I've yet to have bulls bugle their way right into me doing one that were on a slow time like this. No cows in heat. They just show up. And sometimes you hear pop, pop, crack, then hardly nothing. They're just slipping through. And then maybe something again. 
but they're not scared. And so they just come in as an elk. Most of the time you'll see brush moving as they're moving it with their antlers as they're trying to get around something because you're set up in such a manner that they cannot see 100 yards away to see where this elk is. The setups are the same, whether it's a cold calling, uh, breeding sequence, and advertising. It doesn't matter. Your setups are always tight. Right. So you so, have to choose your areas wisely. So I know Robert hunts Eastern Oregon and I'm hunting on the coast range. And so I'm imagining Robert's thinking you're in some pretty open country, right? It's, is it, is it tough to, to, uh, you, you can use your binoculars a lot. It's probably hard to find real thick cover. And I'm sitting here thinking, I can't hear an elk a hundred yards away. A lot of times we don't <laughs> yeah. have meadows. We don't have burns. It's thick, a hundred percent thick, mm-hmm. thick, thick, everywhere thick. And we have the same thing here, but I mean, we can hear more than a hundred yards away. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like, uh, last year, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a perfect example. We walk up this hill, we park hour before daylight. We walk up this hill, and nothing's going on. And it was September the 3rd. So I'm, I'm going to say that's fairly early season. And as we get up there, we're probably a little over half a mile away from the rig. And we're talking thick. I mean, you 40 yards, is, is that's all you're going to see, anything. Then there's places where it's 15 and 20 yards. We have a ton of willows, tons of huckleberry brush, and then all dark timber. And these are some great areas, and they bench. And it'll go from... 6,800 feet at the bottom all the way to 8,800 feet. So you're, you're going to pull some elevation as you constantly go up and bench, up and bench, up and bench, and it's thick. And we got up to this one area, and all of a sudden we heard two bulls bugling. I mean, just out of nowhere. They were, they, we hadn't heard a sound. We got up to this one bench, and they were probably, I'm going to estimate, 400 yards away from us, to our left and a little above us. But we could hear them bugling. And there was no question in my mind there was a hot cow on September the 3rd. The second bull was just going nuts. And the herd bull, you could hear him warning this bull to stay back. And he kept hold of his cows, and he kept slowly moving up. He wasn't running from him. He was just slowly moving up. Well, I decided we were on the closest spot we were going to get to on that bench. I was going to see if some cow calls would excite that younger bull. And this is thick stuff, really thick. And so my son and I, I told him, we're both going to cow call, chatter it up real quick. Both of us get six, seven of them. And we did. And I could hear the, the herd bull still bugling, slowly moving up. He was bugling this cows, uh, the ones that we were imitating. He liked it, but he wasn't going to come our way. And we knew he wasn't. But we we're trying to pull that satellite bull. And I would say within 30 seconds, 45 seconds, we never heard that bull again, the second bull, nothing. All we heard was the other bull. He was slowly going up the mountain. He'd just bugle every once in a while, and that other bull didn't bugle anymore. Just shut up completely. So I told my son, I said, that bull's coming over here. And he goes, you think so? And I said, yeah, he's coming. That's why he shut up. He's not following that bull anymore. He's coming over to us. We've just redirected that bull. And so I'm going to say close to 10 minutes went by, and we're giving sporadic cow sound. You know, just sporadic, rustling the brush a little he was a ways out there and it's thick he could not just tromp right to us i mean he has to go around stuff an obstacle downfall everywhere and so we're sitting there 10 minutes goes by and my son says he's not coming i said yeah he is just be patient he's coming I'm telling you right now he's coming and so i mean i mean of course inside of me i'm thinking man i sure hope i'm right because you know my son's going let's go after the bull that's bugling he's still going up the hill we can hear him 
I said, no, this just wait, just wait. I said, I really feel this guy's coming. So we kind of hang there and hang there, still giving a few now softer cow calls. Because I feel this bull's cut in the distance. He can really hear me. To out of nowhere, about 50 yards away, it is just, we got 12-foot willows here. And they're so thick that you per, a person can hardly get through them without losing your clothes. I mean, it just tears you to pieces. It's really gnarly stuff. And all of a sudden, you can see the willows just starting to part. And it's, I mean, I, and he's not making a sound, nothing. And I look at my son, and my son, he's only maybe 15 feet from me. I said, he's right there. And he's like shaking his head. He's grabbing an arrow, getting his arrow knocked real quick, getting ready. And because he just really didn't have any faith this bull was coming. So I turned away from the bull and I gave him two soft cow sounds, just giving him a direction where I'm at. And because he's in this thick stuff and he's coming through, coming through. All of a sudden, I see him at 40. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I thought he was going to be a smaller bull, you know, but he is a six point bull. And I'm thinking, holy cow, he's coming right through there. And I see him at 40, 35, 30. 25, 20, and he's just coming straight by both of us. He gets right between us, but he's in front of us. And as soon as he does, I'm thinking, I'm thinking the whole time, nervous ground, nervous ground, nervous ground. I am, you know, I have the call in my mouth. And you know, the worst thing about it is I had my video camera right there. I'm supposed to be videoing this. And I was so caught up in the moment, I didn't even have this thing on. I forgot I even had it in my hand. I'm just looking and I'm wanting to make sure I stop this bull. Right when he gets into the window, because it's some thick stuff. And so, and, and I should have just let my son stop him, but I didn't. I just kind of get, you just get caught up, you know? And I see where Paul is. So I see him draw his bow, and as the bull comes through, you know, I, I and, and he comes through at about 20 yards, and I stop him with a cow call instead of a nervous grunt. And the reason I did that is because it was a cow call that brought him all the way over to that point. You see what I mean? And so, when I, I decided to use a cow call, and it did, it froze him right in his tracks, and Paul shot him at just, I believe it was at 20, maybe it was a hair underneath it, but it was just the fact that it was that thick a country, and it still brought him from that distance, and as he came in on in search of it, he never made a sound, but it ended up taking almost 15 full minutes of exercise and some patience right there, and, and being able to... Uh, to, to pull that, put that bull down there. But you know, some of the most exciting stories, even early on, was when my, I can remember my son shot this bull with his recurve. If you guys would have been there, you would have had just, your jaws would have hit the ground. I know mine did. And it was one of the most phenomenal stories that we had located this bull. And you know what's so interesting, James, is that we had contacted this bull an hour or so before daylight, kind of along what you were saying. We had gone a couple of days and not had any luck of having elk respond because we're really big at running and gunning, running and gunning, calling, looking, okay, when, once, when when you say off. When you say running and gunning, you're, you're, you're locate, location, beagles. location yeah. beagles. Hoping to get a response to give us a direction to go and hunt them. We don't set up and try to call them right there. Right. We now found him, them, whatever it is, and we can tell by that bull's response there's a hot cow in the group you see if a bull's defensive he has a hot cow so remember that as a hunter if a bull is not defensive he does not have a hot cow he's just giving you a direction so if you have a bull give you a like bugle back like your location bugle and again our location bugle is real similar to doing this here So you, nothing fancy whatsoever, just kind of giving it a high note that will carry out there. And when a bull re responds back in, in a similar manner, he's not being defensive. 
Not whatsoever. No, but, no chuckles, no grunts. Just uh, well, you know, he, he, that's what he's doing. And when you got a bull that's defensive, he can come back in several different manners. It depends on 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 the bull himself. You know, they're not robots. But if a bull throws a grunt out or two, and then a challenge bugle behind it, or a challenge bugle with a grunt or two, you know darn well he's got he's protecting he's being defensive and the only reason is defensive is because he has a cow either coming into estrus or she's already in estrus and so he's telling you to get the crap out of there he does not want you anywhere near him so see or his cows and so that is how we're reading a situation and that's what we would do to apply the next set of strategies and in my opinion what we do is we get over there and we try to call that cow away from the bull because we know he has a hot cow we could care less about the other 70 hours no, it's the hot one, and he knows it. So we go in there, and we try to lip ball that bull away. But if a bull will respond back more like a... <laughs> you see, instead of just kind of a location bugle with a pure note, it's a big difference. And sometimes you're just going to have him give that growl where he kind of gives a... And he just gives that short little blast to you. He's not welcoming you over. You see what I'm saying? And that's all, all we're listening to is we're listening to the intensity of his bugle or the lack of it. And it just tells us immediately what we're dealing with. And so all those things are real, real important as a bow hunter. So you know how to react. But this one bull, we gave a location bugle. It was a good hour before daylight. And he hammered us immediately. Very defensive. Very defensive. And we knew this area. He was about three-quarters of a mile up on top. We had to go about six, 700 feet. And we got up there. We got up. We get up on top. There's a hunter. We didn't see the hunter. We could hear him cow calling. He's probably 300 yards off to our left. He came in from a different direction. Didn't he have any clue he was there until we got on top. And the reason I say it was a hunter, I could hear his calling. And I, you know, I knew right then it was, it, and the bull was just answering him every note, every cow call he made. That bull was just hammering, but he wasn't going to him. He was slowly moving away from him, and I could see his cows a little bit. It was still kind of dark, and things are just kind of moving out, and they're still 150 yards from us. But you could hear that that hunter cow call, cow call, cow call, cow, and it sounded like he even had a hoochie mama with them. And I can see the bull moving, and so we're not saying anything. All right, let's see what the hunter does. That's you know, we weren't going to bust the guy's uh, hunt up. If he handled it right. Well, so we sit there and wait and wait. We're listening to this whole thing for like 10 minutes, just sitting there. All of a sudden, the hunter starts to bugle. And the bull go ahead, and the bull's still bugling him just as if he was cow calling. And I could see the bull from the hunter in my mind's eye, so to speak. 200, 250, 300, 350, 400. This how many yards they're getting apart. The bulls continue to move. The hunter isn't making a move. Not an inch. He's sitting there. Now, all he's doing is bugling now. He's just bugling as a primo special. You can hear it a mile away. And he bugles. And he bugles. <laughs> the same bugle every time. And he's staying right there. And uh, this bull finally is getting to where it's getting faint. And I told my son, I said, well, does it's, the it's, bull, it's our turn. Does the bull have cows? Is he moving Oh, yeah. Cows? He had a ton of cows, actually. He probably so is had he, is he eight chuckling? to ten cows. Pardon me? Is he chuckling? That bull threw a lot of stuff at that guy. He wasn't really chuckling at all once he started to bugle. He he did it first when he was trying when the guy was cow calling, which basically he was trying to call that cow over to him. Right. You know, the guy had him sold that it was a cow, and the bull was not going to run over and leave nine cows to go hook up one. And that's what bulls don't like doing. And so, with this guy being persistent and being that far from the from the group, now it would have been a different story if that hunter would have been forty to fifty yards away and cow called. 
You see, it all, that bull could have definitely came right over to him to just hook her up and bring her in. But he wasn't going to leave his cows from that distance to hook up one more. When in the real world, he calls the cow to the group, she generally comes. So when this cow didn't come, he started putting distance between them. He knew something wasn't right. It wasn't his first rodeo. This is an area a lot of hunters hunt, you know. And so it was nothing unusual. I'm sure that bull has seen that who knows how many times. But it was still early in this season. I believe it was the 5th. If I remember right, it was September the 5th. My son was shooting the recurve. It was the second year he was shooting a recurve with cedar arrows. And he was sh- shooting that. You guys heard of that broadhead, the Sirocco. It's got bleeders on it. Uh-huh. It's actually it's it's a kind of an imitation of like a Zwicky with with uh, bleeders on it, but it, it's a lot bigger head. And so anyway, he's shooting this arrow on on a glue on on his cedar shafts. And so I told my son, I says this hunter is done. He is not going after that bull. The, the we can barely hear the bull starting to rain. Let's hot foot it. We're in a side hill right here. That bull's just continually going up. So as we start cutting the distance, we still haven't made a sound. Nothing other than locating him from way down below. So now we're hot-footed, and now I can barely hear that hunter, barely hear him. I mean, just like the end of stuff until it finally got to the point where I don't hear him at all. So this guy, he was long gone. He was just toast. He didn't know what to do with the situation. So we're following this bull, not saying anything. So we're going, going, going. This bull takes us almost another mile, and now we can hear two other bulls bugling this bull. They're up above him. And this bull's vocal. I mean, you're following vocalizations. That's the only reason we could follow him. Yeah. Because what we didn't know, he set, he kept bugling his way, is we didn't know there was another bull or two above him. And he was now answering them. And I mean, there was no question. These were bulls. We could hear them once we cut the distance. So now we're cutting the distance, and now we're noticing the herd bulls, bugles are all c- coming from the same spot. So we knew he was at his destination. And that's one of the biggest reasons, if you can stay away from it as your, as your dog in a herd, as a lone hunter, I try not to call at all. Let him do the calling if he will stay vocal enough. You know, if I start doing any calling at all because time has gone by or distance, I may throw some cow calls in. So he'll try to call me to the group and I will keep him going as much as I need to call. Not that I'm trying to call him to him. Or I'm going to go right to him is so he'll stay vocal because what I'm trying to do is find his bedding area. That's what I'm trying to do, because once he gets where he wants to be, he will not move. That's where you kill him. That's where 80% of our bulls are killed. We kill them right in their bedding area. And so what we try to do is get them to that spot. We didn't know where this bull's bedding area was. Or else we would have just hot-footed a long time ago and tried to be over there by the time he got there. We had no clue in this in this particular case. So now we are following this ridge, and we can just hear him. And now the bugling is getting louder and louder and louder. And like I said, that bull did not move. And so I thought, okay, this bull's in his bedding area. And where does he bed? The biggest thicket of willows you ever saw in your life. I mean, it was just humongous. And now the rain is starting to pick up a little bit more. So we move in. After all this, still no calling. We could see now. I see a sat one of the satellite bulls looking like a small five up on the hill above, and I could just see pieces of him as we're slipping through. We're underneath. We're on a bench, and we're on the downhill side of this bench. The bulls on the level part. We're almost on the little bit of a knob of the bench on the right side where it goes down to the next one so to speak. So we're on that little edge and the wind is in our favor. And so we're getting down there. Now we're probably 50 yards away and we're sitting there and I'm telling my son, I'm trying to think what I'm going to do. I want to call the bull's cows away, but he is in the thickest stuff you've ever seen. And there's no getting to this bull. It's not like, oh, I'll give a few cow calls or I'll slip in silently and we'll try to kill this bull. And so I'm shooting a longbow. He has the recurve at this time. 
And so I told him, I said, and, and about this time, we've been there for several minutes. And I'm saying, hey, man, the wind feels a little bit iffy right now. It's getting to be a little bit later in the day. It's 9 o'clock now, which isn't real late, but it's later in the morning. And the thermals are starting to move a little. No sun. It's still a little bit rainy. And I said, man, we're going to have to make something happen real quick. So there was a small fir tree right there that grew up about 15 feet. I put my son right on the other side of it. I said, you stay right on this side. I'm going on the back side of the tree, and there's a downfall log there with a bunch of dead limbs. I said, I'm going to get right over here. I said, I am going to scream a challenge at that bull and then bust every one of these limbs. I said, just get ready. And so I'm getting ready and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to have to work this bull up is what my whole plan was here. I'm probably going to have to go to some pants and maybe some chuckling for his cows and lip ball. You know, I'm ready. I'm having this whole thing in my head what I'm going to go through. So, but at, the, but at the same time, I have my longbow. I set it right next to one of the branch with an arrow already knocked on right there so it's sitting right there so i'm thinking okay i'm getting ready i can't see my son at all he's on the other side of this tree this of this fir tree and you know fir tree limbs go, go all the way to the ground they're not like a regular pine where they start 10 feet tall so i can't see him there and so i grab my bugle grab my reed and i just scream a challenges everything i had to where i almost saw stars i mean i am unloading <laughs> on this bull 50 yards away, he's just above us on the other side of the willows, and I'm, I don't know what he's going to do. And as soon as I screamed, I grabbed my arm, and I just broke every bit of the branches I could muster. Just crack, crack, crack. As this bull, like, he just raked and screamed that challenge. Well, I'm getting ready to do another one, and all I could hear was screaming from this bull. And, I mean, he is running through the willows. It was like the Red Sea, and I kid you not, all I could see was willows parting. Once I bugled. I honestly believe that bull stood eight yards from me in less than three seconds. I have no idea I got through there like that. But it was so fast. I remember seeing and hearing the brush. Just It, it was like it was the most violent thing as he blew through this thing. There was no like, I'm sneaking in a little bit and going to bugle in your face. He blew through these willows. He was so pissed off on that one bugle. I Grab my longbow, I grab my tab, and I'm just putting it underneath the string. This bull's standing eight yards from me, and it's raining, and I can just see steam coming out of his, flaring out of his nostrils. And I'm not kidding you. This is a black, big six-point bull, blackest horns you've ever seen, like he'd been wallowing in. And I go to draw back because I'm thinking what my son is doing, but I see this bull right there so close. And all of a sudden, I hear, I hear the arrow fly, and I see his shaft sink right into the heart of that bull uh, and the bull uh, yes and as the bull oh as the bull whirls there's a small tree right there and i see it snap the end of his flesh he shoots turkey fle- uh, turkey feathers they were the the barred ones with black and red i'll never forget it because as he turned real quick i could see maybe eight nine inches of fletching sticking out and it snapped it off right there and here i am getting ready to draw on this bull and all this just hit this bull whirls and runs and all of a sudden, I could see him just skidding off the edge of the bank. And all I do is stand up real quick and look over, and I can see his racks it in the air. He killed that bull that fast. That bull probably didn't go 35 yards. One shot right through the heart and down that bull skidded. And all we did, I ran over to the other side of the bush looking at my son. And, I mean, we're staring at each other. And I tell you right now, we never said a word. We were so just <gasps> – It was unbelievable. It wasn't like you had any time and there was no time to think about anything. It was just bam, bam, how he kept it together and shot that bull. He had killed a bull the year before with the same recurve. So that was the second bull two years in a row. He killed it with that recurve, but no experience like that one. That was probably the one of the most exciting 
elk call-ins for as short-lived as it was that I have ever experienced. It was absolutely incredible because not only did he come screaming through the brush, when he got there at eight yards, which I didn't tell you, he screamed a bugle from right there. Uh. And I mean, that is like a meltdown. I mean, to tell you, it was so awesome. But, you know, it was just a story that, that I just wanted to share right there that, that he had killed right there. And I'll tell you what, we were just, we were, we were plum excited. And, and to be able to do that with a recurve, you know, that that's something that's even more special because you know how it is. You cannot draw, aim, and fire until that bull is right there ready to die. There was no drawn, no nothing like that, that, you know, compound guys have that luxury yeah. of drawing when you know something's coming. You don't have that. Thanks for joining us. That was a super awesome discussion with Paul Medell, the Elk Nut. We went ahead and cut this interview in half. Part two will be out next week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, TuneIn. Check us out on our website, tradquest.com. Good luck to everybody out there. Opening day is just days away for us here in Oregon. When this airs, it'll be opening morning tomorrow. Good luck, all my brothers and sisters of the bow.